Check out the China Econ Talk newsletter, chinaecontalk.substack.com. Check out the China Econ Talk newsletter. It's good, I promise. Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. We're back this week with Julia Lobel for part two of our exploration of her, dare I say it, magisterial exploration into Maoism's global legacy. I encourage listeners who missed last week to catch up on Maoism's evolution on the Chinese mainland from Yan'an through Mao's death. This episode will be taking a grand tour from India to Nepal with stops in the U.S., Europe, Tanzania, Vietnam, Cambodia, on the way looking into just how Maoism mutated in mortifyingly maniacal ways. Julia, welcome back to China Econ Talk. Thanks very much for having me again. So let's start with Vietnam and Cambodia. Uh, Ho Chi Minh initially was a huge Mao fan. That's right. The Vietnamese communists, uh, who were adversaries, of course, of the US in the hottest conflict of the Cold War, were, in their own words, uh, disciples of Mao. So as Ho Chi Minh, the leader of the North Vietnamese communists, planned and fought his rebellions against French and then US control from the uh, mid-1940s through to the 1960s, Ho relied on both material aid but also strategic blueprints uh, from Mao. And just to give a sense of the dimensions of the assistance that China under Mao gave uh, North Vietnam, between 1950 and 1975, China donated some $20 billion in aid. It trained thousands of uh, North Vietnam students and cadres in China and supplied sort of untold numbers of essential items, things like roads, bullets, uh, uniforms um, and food. So really from their hats to their underpants, uh, Vietnamese communists <laughs> were dressed in kit from China. And I think without Maoist Chinese intervention, Vietnamese communists wouldn't have been able to fight the French and then the US to exhaustion between 45 and 1973. Sure. And this is, uh, of course, at a time where communist China was not the richest country in the world. I mean, there were millions of people starving, but at the same time, Mao thought it important enough to give a significant material aid to not only Ho Chi Minh, but other revolutionaries around the world. That's right. I think that in terms of total aid received, uh, Vietnam and then Cambodia were the greatest beneficiaries of China's aid program under Mao, followed, I think, probably by Africa. So, you know, by the early 1970s, um, aid is roughly about five or six percent of uh, China's national budget. So really, really huge proportion of the budget. And this is a very, very significant sea change under Mao. Recall that China, under the nationalists, under Chiang Kai-shek, up to 1949, had, of course, been a recipient of international aid, um, mainly, of course, US aid. And so this shift, which happens during the late 1950s, at the time of the Great Leap Forward, um, with Mao trying to turn China into a giver of aid rather than a recipient of 
aid is a really significant gear change in China reinventing itself as a global power. It's such a, men a Mienza thing, isn't it? Like, look at us. We're on the big stage. Like, you know, we're like the rich uncle at the uh, family reunion or something. I think there is certainly an aspect of that. And this has absolutely tragic implications during the Great Leap Forward. So it's during the Great Leap Forward that China's international aid program comes into being with really substantial amounts of food and different sorts of largesse uh, going to Albania, for example, um, and also to uh, uh, recently decolonized African countries. And you know, thanks to the work of Yang Jishang and, and Frank Dakota, we know how utterly desperate things were for food production and consumption in China during these years. And so the aid program, I'm afraid, is directly taking food out of the mouths of starving Chinese people. Yeah, Frank Takata, I remember in his his book on the Great Leap Forward had an anecdote. I think it was from an um, an ambassador who like said he almost felt guilty taking the money because he was living in China. He had a sense of just, you know, how in desperate straits the Chinese people were. But, you know, he was going to do what was best for his country. And uh, if the Chinese were willing to, you know, make these sort of mistakes, like you know, more power to Albania or what have you. But just a really, uh, really horrifying and like twisted time and, and, you know, the history of foreign policy, I think. Exactly. The global, and that, the global history of foreign policy. I mean, yeah. um, well, well, indeed. And, and uh, I, I totally agree. That episode described in uh, Frank Dekosha's book really stuck with me as well. I, I think it was the Albanian ambassador. Just going back to what we were talking about last time, um, this um, desire for Mao and his lieutenants to reinvent themselves as global donors also ties into the rivalry with the Soviet Union. Um, the Soviet Union also has an international aid program, and of course is relatively a more developed, uh, richer economy at that point. Um, and so I think probably in absolute terms, the Soviet Union gives more money, especially to third world countries, say, in Africa. But in terms of what China is giving, it proportionally, because China is so much poorer as a country uh, than the Soviet Union, you know, proportionally it represents a greater sacrifice. China can afford these aid budgets even less. Having said that, you know, by the 1970s, early 1980s, the Soviet aid budgets, which are in part inflated by this sense of rivalry with China in the third world, have had a direct impact on the Soviet Union's own very pressing economic problems, which, you know, ultimately uh, play a major role in the Soviet Union losing the Cold War to uh, the United States. So the Soviet Union is spending so much money giving aid and carrying regimes in other parts of the world uh, that the, the living standards of its own citizens are really quite drastically depressed. You know, I think it's a really salient example of to what extent Mao and Maoism had a grip on policy. It's hard to imagine any other ideology bringing a country to take food out of the mouths of its own people and not even like a different race of people, but like, you know, everyone's Hanzu pretty much. And you're you're willing to starve your your majority ethnicity, your majority religion or what have you in order to kind of make yourself look better on the world stage, which is just just sort of unbelievable to me. Um, I probably would add, though, that um, this type of uh, ruthlessness with regard to um, economic outcomes for 
political or military or industrial benefit. Um, I would say this is this is something that Mao lifts strongly from Stalin. Mao was a great fan oh, of sure, Stalin's yeah. crash industrialization and collectivization of the uh, late 1920s, which led to awful famine, especially in Ukraine around that time and up to the early 1930s. So this this, this sort of model of um, state ruthlessness is something that also comes directly from Stalin. Yeah, I'm not sure if I shouted it out before, but the Stephen Kotkin series on Stalin, Paradoxes of Power and and Waiting for Hitler are a really good, I mean, amazing books, but but as you said, very much help uh, make a little bit more sense of what Mao was thinking, what his sort of reference points are and where he learned. Where Indeed. he learned lessons was, from. Yeah, absolutely. Kotkin's an extraordinary scholar. Okay, so coming back to uh, Vietnam. So, so Ho Chi Minh, you, you said he, we, we talked about how he took a lot of money from uh, money and materiel, but also, you know, from an ideological perspective, all the way down to land reform, military tactics, a ton of it actually has very direct influence from what Mao did when he was fighting his wars. That's right. I think probably the standout borrowing is land reform, which um, Chinese advisors um, to Ho Chi Minh, um, who have a lot of influence because of the money and other sorts of support that China is giving to Ho and his regime. So Chinese advisors in North Vietnam put very heavy pressure on uh, Ho Chi Minh and his lieutenants to introduce a Mao-style land reform. And this results in a huge amount of human suffering in the North Vietnamese countryside. Actually, today, this is a campaign that the uh, Vietnamese communist regime itself will admit was a bad mistake. They had to pull back from it um, in the second half of the 1950s, admitting that many labels about economic status and landowning had been given wrongly, uh, there'd been unnecessary suffering and so on and so forth. Um, So, you know, this is actually a very, very painful issue in Vietnamese communist history. But I think I would, I'd I'd really like to point out an important dimension of the travels of Mao's ideas and practice to Vietnam. Um, uh, Yes, there was a lot of direct borrowing and, um, you know, a lot of adulation of Mao as a politician, as a political thinker. But it's also um, impossible to understand this relationship without keeping in mind the very, very strong force of Vietnamese nationalism um, and much older historical currents in the relationship between Vietnam and China. So, uh, you know, although between the 1950s and 1960s, there seems to be this close nurturing relationship between China and Vietnam. This is an exception, really, in Sino-Vietnamese relations um, over the centuries and millennia. So uh, in Vietnamese history museums today, um, you know, the the, the really frightening enemy actually is not the US, despite the horrors of uh, the war that the US fought in Vietnam, but rather the real historical bogeyman is, is China, the big threatening neighbour to the north. And so what you end up with increasingly um, amongst the Vietnamese communists between the sort of 1960s and 1970s is on the one hand, they're willing to take aid from China, but increasingly 
unwilling to admit Chinese Maoist influence, although quite a number of the ideas that they seem to be using in fighting the war, say sort of protracted guerrilla warfare, do seem to be lifted from Mao and Mao's ideas about warfare. There's an increasing unwillingness to admit that. And these tensions between China and Vietnam, of course, uh, intensify and erupt into a really ugly border war uh, between 78 and 79. You know, what, what turns out to be a big flashpoint and perhaps the darkest chapter of Maoist foreign policy is is what played out in Cambodia. So so take us through that story, if you if you will, Julia. So um, in Cambodia, of course, another very volatile part of Southeast Asia through the Cold War, neighboring with Vietnam. The Chinese Communist Party under Mao were the main inspirers and backers for the Khmer Rouge before and after they took power in spring 1975. And this comes about partly through, for, for sort of intellectual and political reasons, in the leadership of the Khmer Rouge, um, individuals like uh, Pol Pot and Yang Sari, who uh, spend time in Cambodia, uh, sorry, who spend time in China in the uh, 1960s and 1970s and are attracted to the radicalism of the Cultural Revolution, its sort of uh, recurrent purges against perceived enemies, the anti-colonial rhetoric of Mao's revolution also attracts them. But they're also drawn to Mao's China for reasons of strategic geopolitical rivalry. So I just talked about the historical rivalry and tensions between Vietnam and China. These sorts of tensions are replayed between Cambodia and Vietnam. So to Cambodian communists, the Vietnamese communists um, are again the, 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 the threatening, overbearing neighbours to the north. Uh, the Cambodian communists such as Pol Pot always suspect the Vietnamese are wanting to annex Cambodia and to, to, to run the, the Cambodian communist uh, organisations themselves. Um, so men like Pol Pot are sort of drawn to this close alliance with China, again to undercut their reliance on Vietnam. Um, now after the Khmer Rouge take power in 1975, because of their own intense nationalism, they turned out to be unruly diplomatic allies they wanted, although they're very happy to take huge amounts of money from China. Uh, they tried to keep uh, China at a distance in terms of its ability to control what the Khmer Rouge government uh, was doing, just as they tried to keep every single foreign government at a distance. However, the Khmer Rouge did directly translate into Cambodian key ingredients of Mao's own political model, particularly as evidenced in the Cultural Revolution. So things like radical collectivization, uh, a pathological suspicion of the educated, and the paranoia and constant purges of the Cultural Revolution. And by early 1979, around 2 million, so about 20% of the population, had died un unnatural deaths in Cambodia. That's and if we unbelievable. Think it, uh, just, hor just horrifying. And if 
we are thinking also about the contemporary afterlives of this phenomenon. So the leader of uh, Cambodia today is a man called Hun Sen, uh, who is a former Khmer Rouge commander who defected in the late 1970s to Vietnam. Uh, he's a man with a sort of terrible record of political violence against his opponents. Uh, and I understand he's currently the world's longest serving prime minister. So please take us through the, uh, the Sino-Vietnamese war. What happened there? The Sino-Vietnamese war, as I set out, was the culmination of brewing tensions between the Chinese and the Vietnamese, sort of really from the 1970s. When I was trying to find a framework for understanding what's going on between China and Vietnam at this time, oddly, I found myself going back to an old and much criticised framework for investigating what China was doing um, in uh, in Vietnam uh, between the 50s and uh, 70s. Um, and this is namely the domino theory, the idea that Chinese and Soviet communist subversion were energetically at work, turning states communist, and that once one state, such as Vietnam, became communist, the rest of the region would immediately follow. So this was, you know, a, 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 an old chestnut of the State Department, of the US security establishment, and was one of the main pretexts for sending boots on the ground to Vietnam in the quantities that they did through the 60s and 70s. Now, for very good reasons, analysts since the 1970s have been hugely critical of the domino theory because it led to the horrors committed by the US Army in Vietnam between 65 and 73. So you know, we should we should still be critical of it in the way that it was understood in, in the US government. However, sources on China-Vietnam interaction that have become available in the last 20 or so years uh, indicate that the domino theory did actually have some purchase on the reality of Mao's thinking towards Vietnam. You know, these mm. sources suggest that Mao and his uh, lieutenants did want to spread their blueprint for revolution through Southeast Asia and beyond. And so it's growing suspicion amongst uh, the Vietnamese communists as their own war effort becomes increasingly successful. So there's suspicion amongst Vietnamese communists that the Chinese are in some way seeking to dominate and control their own revolution that leads to increasing political tensions, um, uh, material aid is cut off after 1975, um, you know, all those sort of territorial disputes that we're familiar with from the headlines at the moment, they reopen um, after uh, 1975 too. And so, you know, as a result of all these tensions, Mao's successor, Deng Xiaoping, decides to, quote, you know, teach the Vietnamese a lesson. These ungrateful ex-Maoists, we spent so much money, we taught them so much, how do they not understand? That's well put, because there is definitely a kind of sense of paternalistic anger here. You know, we gave them so much. We gave them everything. This is Dung's thinking. And they're not, you know, they're, 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 they're not paying lip service to us. They're insufficiently respectful. I think this tells us quite a lot about, um, you know, Mao era China's, uh, yeah, how, how kind of 
old-style imperial ideas impinge on Mao-era China's ideas sure. about foreign policy. You know, on the one hand, there's this idea that all men are brothers and, you know, we're working for a totally egalitarian communist revolution. But on the other hand, there is still an imprint of old-style Tianxiajui that China represents the center of the world here, the center of the world revolution. So it's translated into Marxism. Uh, but, you know, this is not necessarily a completely equal world order. And, you know, certain countries like Vietnam owe China a debt of respect. And when China feels it's not getting that, very ugly war can result. The Black Panthers. So what does it mean that uh, folks, uh, folks in the 60s and 70s wanted to be, quote, black like Mao? Well, more broadly, the 1960s counterculture movement of that decade witnessed a Mao craze amongst radicals in Western European and North American cities. So student protesters, for example, who were dissatisfied with their universities and with their governments, um, identified or misidentified Mao's cultural revolution as a youth protest um, and adopted its slogans such as uh, its right to rebel and bomb the headquarters in their own revolts and uh, revolts and demonstrations. There was also, in addition to this sort of domestic context of discontent, which drove sympathy with Mao's China, there was also an international political backdrop to the Western enthusiasm for Mao. Um, so this is a time of intense disgust at US intervention in Vietnam. In this context, many Western radicals felt solidarity with Mao's China, which was America's number one international detractor through this time. And this really followed the logic of my enemy's enemy is my friend. And then when you look at how this um, solidarity with Mao's China develops in North America, in the United States, it merges with outrage over the mistreatment of marginalised and persecuted ethnic groups. So black, sure. Latin and Asian and, uh, and Asian Americans. Um, I mean, and actually, the, uh, b before we jump into that, I'm curious if you could you could talk a little bit about the, the sort of vectors for how Maoism and, and Maoist ideals in whatever form ended up making it to the West, where people just basically reading Red Star Over China and The Little Red Book and, and sort of going from there? Red Star Over China, interestingly, was a really important text. It was very important for um, Asian American radicals. Uh, and, you know, th this is a very uh, interesting time for publication about China in the US because you're just, although, you know, it's very difficult still to um, uh, express communist views in the US, um, you are at least clear of the maddest witch hunts of McCarthyism. So some texts mm. which had been sort of marginalised or pushed out of print by that, um, you know, by the, the sort of the, the, the horrible climate of McCarthyism, um, uh, are coming back into circulation. So Edgar Snow's Red Star Over China is one. Uh, a really, really important text um, is by a an agronomist called uh, William Hinton. Uh, that's called Fan Shen. And this is a book which actually is researched during the Chinese Communist Revolution of 45 through to 49, um, but because of political reasons can't be published in the US until the mid-1960s. Um, mm. So the 
these texts are very positive texts of the early communist revolution. They're not guides to what's going on in China at that moment in the 1960s, but a lot of sort of left-leaning radicals seize hold of these texts and read them as, you know, true representations of the essence of the Chinese revolution and so draw a very very positive impression of that revolution from these texts. The other thing to remember is that China is uh, spending a huge amount of time and energy on something called uh, external propaganda. So uh, these are mainly uh, glossy publications, um, magazines or sort of political newspapers um, which are sort of devoted to portraying uh, communist China as a huge success story, sort of glorious technicolour pictures of, of, of bumper harvests and, and, and rosy-cheeked children and ethnic minorities and so on. Also, that China is also spending a lot of money on broadcasts and all these materials are distributed in dozens of different languages. But as you say, the probably the most numerically significant vector is the Little Red Book, uh, of which more than a billion copies are circulated around the world between the 60s and 70s in dozens of different languages. And um, particularly if you look at the uh, the Black Power movement in the US, uh, the Little Red Book had a hugely important role to play because it was, you know, it was suited to the rough and tumble of um, uh, Black Power militancy. You know, it was it was packaged in a hardy way in this sort of tough red vinyl, <laughs> and it was structured in a way that made it easy to use for the political education of uh, recruits who didn't have much time, who might not have very high levels of literacy. So the oral histories that I did for the book um, revealed that, you know, materials like the Little Red Book, you know, the, 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 they, they were used in very specific and concrete ways. Um, you know, there would be political study meetings, a, a kind of cell leader would read out a quotation and then get individual recruits to explain in their own words what they thought the meaning of Mao's words were and how these could be applied to the black power struggle in China itself. So I love one of these lines, the revolution is not a dinner party, gets reworked in some Black Panther meeting as pick up some guns and don't be bullshit. And, and so the, 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 the translation of the Little Red Book, forgive me, I made a, I made a, uh, a mistake just now. I, uh, I, I meant to say that these um, black power study groups are you know, directly reading Mao to see how it can be applied to their own struggles in, in, in the United States. You know, at, at one point, one of the black power leaders, I think it's uh, Huey Newton, um, just instructs one of his lieutenants to go through the Little Red Book, take out references to the Chinese Communist Party and just replace it with the Black Panthers. So, you know, in some cases, there really was a direct translation of these ideas into practice in the United States. And uh, you're know, just thinking about the, the political thinking behind this. Um, round about this time, uh, a phrase emerges in radical political discussion in the US, uh, which is internal colonies. So uh, marginalised, persecuted ethnic groups um, yet yeah, come to see themselves as internal colonies. So in that context, you know, Mao's very 
strident, confident denunciations of imperialism. You know, his famous phrase, imperialism is a paper tiger, really resonates uh, with these groups. And for that reason, they're really inspired to channel Mao's ideas about party building and political violence to challenge the white American ruling establishment. So another quote I just have to I just have to relate uh, also from the Black Panther movement was someone saying that, quote, every once in a while you get a brother calling a sister counter-revolutionary. And the sisters were getting mad about that because it seemed to be related only to the fact that the sister didn't want to sleep with the brother. Using, uh, you know, Maoist rhetoric both as a way to uh, incite revolution as, as well as a way to pressure people into having sex with you. Very interesting ways, I guess, in which this ideology metastasized around the world. I think you've also raised a really important point here, which is, you know, what I'm I'm not trying to argue in a kind of cold warrior-ish sort of way that there was a kind of controlling centre in China which was sending out agents and sending out ideas to export this ideology in tidy, controlled ways. You know, there was a huge amount of energy and money and time put within China into um, uh, exporting Mao's ideas. But once these ideas went beyond China. They were translated, uh, mistranslated, uh, distorted, you know, they played out in very, very different ways within different social groups, different social contexts, according to the particular environment, in according to the particular moment at which they hit. Um, and I think sort of one interesting example of this is, say, comparing the impact of these ideas in certain countries in Africa and uh, sort of comparing that impact with what happens when Maoist ideas reach South Asia um, or Latin America. So Africa is, I think, one of the regions where China lavishes most material aid and perhaps energy to, um, you know, really trying to persuade um, elites and insurgents to follow the Maoist blueprint. Um, but the actual sort of instrumental results are very, very patchy indeed. So, you know, despite a huge amount of money being lavished on different African countries, no African state tries to, you know, take up wholesale the Maoist political model. You know, so it's certainly nothing comparable to, say, Cambodia, even though the, the Cambodians wouldn't admit that that's what they were doing. Whereas if you contrast that with um, the way that Mao's China uh, operates in, say, Latin America or South Asia, they're, they're far more hands-off. It's mainly distributing what we're just talking about, you know, um, foreign language, propaganda. Um, in South Asia, it would be um, uh, uh, in Hindi uh, or, in, or, or in English or other local languages, obviously in, in, in Spanish or in um, for example, in Latin America. Uh, they invite a few communists to China um, to show them around, but you know, it's really quite hands-off. But sort of there, by comparison, because of you know the particularities of personalities that these ideas encounter and your know, particular set of socioeconomic circumstances, these ideas take root and are actually translated into um, insurgencies, civil wars that have transformed the destinies of the countries in which they took place. So what struck me when I read about the Maoist influence in Africa were the parallels actually between the West's sort of like missionary uh, evangelism or just like technical advice type stuff that 
has happened in mainland China starting in the in the 18th 19th century and what Mao was trying to do and how you know everyone sort of you know the the, the domestic country whether that be China um, receiving American or Western aid or the African countries receiving what Mao would give them you, you know the, the the givers of the aid sort of always end up a little disappointed that uh, more wasn't actually taken up and, and absorbed by the recipient. Yeah, I think one of the features of the uh, reception of Mao's ideas in Africa, or ideas and practices in Africa, what comes over very clearly is the political polyglottism of um, uh, decolonizing and post-colonial Africa. So I think that very likely all three superpowers in the Cold War, the US, the USSR and also China, were overly optimistic about the potential for getting uh, new African states coming into being after World War II uh, to take wholesale uh, one of their political models. In reality, African leaders were far more creative, far more pragmatic. They took bits and pieces. A great example of this is Julius Nyerere in Tanzania. You know, because of the colonial past, there was always a huge... British influence uh, in Tanzania. Um, you know, there were strongly Anglophile aspects to Julius Nyerere. For example, he translated uh, Shakespeare into Swahili. But Julius Nyerere also was, you know, a great admirer of Mao and the Chinese model and took aspects of that on board also. Um, so I think that's a, a great example of how post-colonial African leaders really mixed and matched. Sure. You know, he, uh, in Tanzania, they had a, uh, you know, sending the uppity youth down to uh, become farmers for years and years, which is pulled straight out of the handbook of um, of Mao. Yeah, and there were, you know, other ideas that Nyerere really ran with. He loved the idea of sort of long march, um, self-reliance, sort of self-sacrifice. Uh, uh, he responded also to the political puritanism of the Cultural Revolution. Um, but again, in terms of actually the long-term instrumental sort of economic political uptake of these ideas, it's rather limited and certainly limited relative to the amount of money and energy that Mao's China poured into these areas. But at the same time, I would see you know, your big story in the news for many years now has been China's influence in Africa um, and investment in Africa. Um, and I, you know, that's a story which really hit the world headlines are what probably from the late 1990s onwards. Um, but I would strongly argue that we can't understand China's you know, ability to operate in Africa today without being cognizant of this deeper history of sort of relations and often goodwill uh, that China generated in Africa through these very, very generous aid programs. You know, things like the Tanzan Railway, uh, which cost, you know, untold millions to build and also gen you know, required huge sacrifices uh, for people in China to bring this railway to Africa. I showed up in China in June 2017, not knowing much more than Niha. 
Two months later, I was HSK 3.5, confidently having hour-long conversations and traveling alone in rural Yunnan. By the time I started my graduate program that fall, I wasn't the foreigner who forced Chinese groups to switch into English. In my program, there were plenty of students who came to China with no Mandarin background, but none of them got to near the Chinese level I did, largely because they didn't have the right environment to invest in the basics. So where did I make all this critical progress? At CLI in Guilin, one of the few places that teaches Chinese right. In four hours of daily one-on-one -on -one sessions with engaged and flexible teachers, and in an environment that supports immersion outside the classroom. Unlike in Beijing or Shanghai, you'll be forced to use your Chinese in daily life, and won't fall into a friend group of expats. Guilin isn't your average Chinese small city either. As a tourist hub, it's developed enough to provide you with whatever creature comforts you want, from upscale gyms to chill cafes and fancy malls, all while being surrounded by gorgeous mountains and next to no pollution. CLI isn't just for Mandarin beginners, it supports all levels of learning. It's not just for students either. In fact, its median age is 28. To learn more, go to studycli.org and enter offer code CHINAECONTALK for $100 off. Support for this week's show comes from Brattle Street Educational Counseling. Stressed out about college applications? Brattle Street Educational Counseling can help. They provide guidance throughout the whole process and offer workshops for students looking to work in small groups at a rigorous pace. The workshops include hours of one-on-one -on -one attention, from college essays to standardized test prep to interviewing and applications. Brattle Street offers support for any student. Brattle Street, B R A T L E Street dot com, helping you get where you want to go. Can you tell the story quickly about the uh, the memoir you read of the Chinese general who had a bit of rough, a bit of a rough time training um, potential African revolutionaries? Sure. So the name of this general, I think, probably not his real name, is Ma Fasien. When talking about this source, I would just like to say something briefly about historiography in and the, the, the writing of archival history of the Cold War in China itself. I could not, given how difficult things are with archives in China um, today, I could not have written this book without benefiting from the extraordinary uh, work done by uh, China's best archival historians. Um, I'm thinking of people like Shen Zhihua, uh, Niu Jun, um, uh, Yang Kui Song, who sort of before, during and after the kind of golden age of China's archival opening in the 2000s, have just done extraordinary work in finding sources, writing up sources, you know, making it possible for us to have a, a, a better understanding of the complexities of uh, foreign policy under Mao. And this particular source was made available by another extraordinary uh, PRC historian called uh, Li Danhui, who's a specialist on Sino-Soviet uh, North Vietnamese relations. And she did this long set of oral history interviews with a series of early career researchers and PhD students, which she's brilliantly made available in transcribed form in a Chinese academic journal. So we all owe a huge debt of gratitude to the work that people like Li Danhui and Shen Zhihua have done for bringing this history to light. Um, and this individual, Ma 
Malfasien uh, was um, uh, quite a high-ranking officer in the PLA in the early 1970s um, and he was given a very secret mission to go to uh, Zambia and train uh, under very very secretive conditions uh, an officer corps somewhere out in the out, out in the wild in Zambia and he himself was a, a, a good servant of Mao's China um, is obviously a hugely capable person you're able to create this mission in an isolated part of Africa where he didn't have the language so building a training program uh, from scratch um, he was also a, a kind of good a faithful ideological servant of the regime you know he himself said that he saw this as an opportunity you know not only to train an army but to enlighten them about the virtues of uh, Mao's political and military strategies. Um, so he's there for several years, um, uh, but the memoir you know, really puts the lie to this cold warrior idea um, that the Chinese or whichever superpower were able to just uh, sail into, say, an African country and import their model. Um, so Ma Fasien's experience in Zambia is that the people he works with, the locals he, he, he works with, uh, are extremely happy to take what's useful for them, useful to them, um, uh, to, to effectively to kind of squeeze the pips, to, to get every single ounce of benefit from this assistance. But by the end of it, Ma Faxian is actually quite embittered. Um, he feels that he's been taken advantage of, both on a sort of general level, but also in, in, in petty ways. He, he complains that um, the, the Zambian officers are always sort of swanning into his tent to um, catch, drinks, yeah, catch fizzy you know, drinks. Taking his snacks, drinking the, eating the chocolate. I remember there was a guy who was napping under a tree. He walks over. He's like, dude, what's your deal? This is like, this is like ammunition training time. And he says, you know, God told me to rest. And so I thought that, uh, that, that, that oral history, this whole account by Martha Siem was a perfect sort of grassroots example um, of how um, limited China's ability Ability actually to export its model, um, you know, despite huge amounts of generosity and largesse, you know, how limited the possibilities in reality were. Um, he, when he leaves, going back to China after you know a number of years in country, there is no one who wants to uh, wave goodbye to him as his plane takes off. So you know, poor guy, I feel like he's wasted uh, years of his life in the bush with very little to show for it. Mind taking us quickly through uh, Zimbabwe and Mugabe and the connection there between Maoism and uh, and what that regime ended up turning into. On some levels, I would say that. Uh what happens in what was then southern Rhodesia and after 1980 becomes Zimbabwe is perhaps the most striking success story of the export of some of Mao's strategies to Africa. Officers in ZANU, which is leading an insurgency against white 
majority rule in southern Rhodesia through the 60s and 70s. Train in China in the late 1960s and then uh, some Chinese instructors come to Tanzania to train further recruits um, for the insurgency against uh, southern Rhodesia, which intensifies into a really, really horrible civil war through the 1970s. And there is a very intense engagement with uh, Maoist political strategies in, in, in ZANU in the in the future Zimbabwe leadership. Uh, so, for example, um, uh, Mao's ideas about running an army are sort of translated into Shona, they're turned into uh, songs. Uh, ideas about mass mobilisation are used in order to bring lo- local populations in with the civil war effort. And the officers involved in the civil war on the ZANU side themselves are very, very open about the inspiration they got from Mao's China and the, the, the huge impact that these ideas had on their success in the civil war with uh, Ian Smith's white minority government in South Rhodesia. Having said that, I would argue that the impact of Mao's ideas is broadly limited to that political strategy, that, that to, it's limited to that military strategy in the civil war. Um, There's no clear attempt to bring the strategies of high Maoism, so mass mobilisation, radical collectivisation, to Zimbabwe after 1980. What's received a lot of international attention, for example, is the um, sort of land seizures from white farmers after 2000. Uh, But I I don't see actually a particularly strong Maoist imprint from that. So again, I would say that the, although Zimbabwe seems to be an example of where uh, Maoism did strike root, I would argue that it's not actually, you know, again, sort of bearing out my overall thesis for Africa. Uh, There's been very little instrumental political impact. There's kind of, you know, local, very partial use of these strategies, but just where it suits insurgents or governments. You know, again, very much, you know, these groups are political omnivores, polyglots, you know, they, they take what's most useful to them. Amael Guzman and uh, The Shining Path in Peru, uh, another horrifying episode in Maoist legacies. This actually happens after uh, Mao is dead and gone. But the the idea lingers on even as this isn't necessarily something that, uh, you know, global revolution at this point in time isn't necessarily something that the CCP is all that interested in instigating. Exactly. And the Peruvian case study, the the Shining Path insurgency, which takes place, as you say, through the 1980s after Mao's death, um, is a very good, if frightening, example of the sort of resilience of the afterlives of Mao's ideas, um, even sort of long after Mao himself had died and you know long after Mao's successor, Deng Xiaoping, had dismantled the keynote policies of high Maoism and the Cultural Revolution. Um, so Abimal Guzman was a highly uh, educated provincial intellectual. Um, He was a provincial philosophy prof um, who through the 1960s and 1970s 
cultivated what one might label in a slightly cliched way a kind of cultish professor aura around him he had very radical communist ideas as well um, and uh, sort of within the broader international context of Chinese radicalism during the Cultural Revolution he sided with China rather than the Soviet Union he had a couple of trips to China in the second half of the 1960s which had you know an absolutely huge impact on him politically and militarily um, and after he returned to Peru through the 1970s um, uh, he devoted himself to organizing um, a very secretive highly disciplined uh, party called the Shining Path um, and uh, you know they didn't really um, uh, feature very largely on the radar of the Peruvian state um, uh, until their first uh, terrorist acts in the very late 1970s. So it's a really interesting example of the ability of Mao's ideas to kind of bury themselves in a very different, very sort of remote cultural context and almost to incubate and uh, you know if they encounter sort of receptive individuals these ideas can be incubated and kind of reappear often in very destructive ways at unpredictable moments and so Abimal Guzman himself who becomes this sort of increasingly cultish leader himself through the 1970s and 1980s after Mao's death and after Deng Xiaoping's turning away from cultural revolution policies he specifically saw himself as the inheritor of Mao's legacy and so that's why in 1979 three years after Mao's death um, he takes it upon himself to launch this Maoist revolution this Maoist civil war in Peru uh, because uh, he sees that China has turned counter Revolutionary, it's turned against these ideas. So if the world revolution is going to continue, it's down to him in Peru. And the the, the human impact is truly terrible. So uh, between 1980 and the late 1990s, by which point the civil war was was winding down, this war killed almost 70,000 people and really shook mm. Peruvian democracy to its core. I mean, I would also like to point out that, of course, it's not exclusively Shining Path, which is responsible for the deaths. It's half, roughly half Shining Path uh, guerrillas um, and half a, you know, absolutely grotesquely repressive response from the state. And so the theory of Shining Path is that, you know, uh, through these uh, extremely violent acts of terrorism that they enact, which are you know, extremely careless about collateral damage, they will then provoke the state into disgusting acts of retaliation. Um, and as a result, the rest of the country will rise up against the state. Um, they're right, the Tiny Path are right in that, you know, disgusting acts of repression are provoked from the state. Uh, but what is generated is just horrific suffering for the Peruvian people. So Maoism, it doesn't end there. Nepal, 1996. It's still still alive and kicking, even even till today. Yes. Yeah, so the, uh, again, Nepal 
India, sort of South Asia in general, are a very striking example of the afterlives of Maoism. Um, thinking about Nepal, the civil war begins in uh, February 1996 um, when a handful of members of the Maoist Communist Party of Nepal, they they rush on a police station uh, in northwest Nepal. They're a small organisation, they're badly armed, sort of under-equipped, I mean certainly next to the you know much stronger firepower of the Nepali state. But what is extraordinary is just a decade later, by 2000, 2006, this small scratch organisation has fought its way to a position of really decisive political influence after 10 years of civil war. So the Nepali Maoists, they pushed back against uh, the Nepali police and army. Uh, The Maoist People's Liberation Army um, is about 10,000 fighters and uh, the state has lost control of about 80% of Nepal's territory. So, you know, this is a huge instrumental political impact. And the armed rebellion of the Nepali Maoists was the main reason for the collapse of the Nepali monarchy and the establishment of the Federal Republic after 2006. And in the ensuing decade between 2006 and 2016, two leaders of the Maoists served between them three terms as Prime Minister of Nepal. So although the Nepali Maoists didn't realise their original ambition, which was you know Chinese-style state capture, resulting in unchallenged control of the country. Uh, So they didn't realise that, but Nepal is now the only country in the world where you can encounter self-avowed Maoists in power. So, you know, a a really extraordinary story of the post-Fukuyama, post-Cold War era, which I think really pushes us to rethink those old triumphalist narratives of the victory of Western-style democracy and capitalism over communism uh, of 1991. You know, Mao doesn't doesn't only have a um, ripple effects abroad. Also, also at home. Also, um, in 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 China domestically, there's a uh, uh, you know there are still certainly echoes of him. There was this great quote you had from a Soviet analysis of post Mao China saying that quote the foam has gone down, but the beer remains. So, um, in what ways in in recent Chinese history and as well as the present day has can Mao's impact be felt? Yeah. So after Mao's death, Deng Xiaoping dismantles the most important standout policies of the Cultural Revolution, so mass spectacle purges, collectivization, and and, and so on, uh, and also open enthusiasm for world revolution and global insurgency. So on the face of it, this is a break with the Maoist past. But uh, in reality, there are huge carryovers um, in the influence of the Maoist model on the post-Mao framework of politics and policy and institutions. And this really comes clearly to the fore with the accession of Xi Jinping in 2012. So it's at that point that China experiences, really for the first time since the death of Mao, an official revival of Maoist culture 
uh, and politics. And this has begun with Borshi Lai's experiment in Chongqing, uh, which comes to a head in 2011. But because Borshi Lai is a provincial politician, it, it can't have a sort of national scope to it. But after Xi Jinping comes to power, uh, he brings back um, certain elements of the Maoist playbook. Uh, things like criticism, self-criticism sessions are far more sort of marked and uh, significant seeming. Um, uh, he launches a so-called mass line website to crack down on corruption. So mass line is one of Mao's most famous policy catchphrases from the uh, 1940s, the theory of it is that it's a way of taking on board ideas from the grassroots and criticising officialdom. And of course, on the face of it, what seems to be you know, the biggest revival from the Mao era um, under Xi Jinping is the return of the personality cult. Uh, so at the end of February 2018, Xi and his Central Committee uh, abolished the 1982 constitutional restriction that limited presidents to two consecutive periods in power. So like Mao, uh, Xi could be president for life. Uh, having said all that, this revival of Maoist politics and culture that we're seeing in China today is extremely partial. Um, there are major aspects of the Maoist heritage that Xi Jinping is determined to suppress. Uh, for example, the bottom-up mobilisations of the Cultural Revolution that almost destroyed the party state in the late 1960s, um, and of course, which absolutely tore apart Xi's own family. Um, so uh, the, the, the way I see Mao's role under Xi and China today is uh, that the leaders of the CCP want to try to turn Mao into a fuzzy father of the nation figure to bolster their own legitimacy. But they're not at all interested in returning to Mao's ideological militancy that was so destabilising nationally and internationally and it's just essential to recall that Xi Jinping's China is different almost beyond recognition from Mao's. It's tied into global finance, its stability is bound to economic performance, its media is too diversified for a single official old-style ideological message to convince its increasingly well-travelled citizens. So the, the question that really gnawed at me as I finished the book was how will Xi's selective revival of the Maoist political repertoire sit within a China and a world that's so transformed from the Mao era. Yeah, I mean, you write that Xi is an engineer and apparatchik by training. He lacks Mao's self-taught, folksly, literary range and philosophical pretensions. He keeps regular hours and has only been married twice. The party under Xi, as under all its leaders since Mao, is terrified by the prospect of a cultural revolution-style bottom-up mobilization of society, which was uh, Maoism's stock and trade, of course. You, another big contrast uh, from, from Xi and Mao, coming back to this, uh, the theme of this conversation, Maoism's uh, impact abroad, is sort of what 
what China is trying to export ideologically and the success or lack thereof that 21st century China is having. I mean, you wrote that the the Xi Jinping thought, which I think was gifted to me at some point, has only sold 700 copies in the UK as compared to the billion that were read uh, with rapt attention all around the world back in the uh, back in the 60s and 70s. So, um, what what gives here? Why is the uh, why is what China is selling abroad so much less compelling than what it was producing 50 some odd years ago? You're absolutely right that China today yearns for soft power influence and it spent billions of dollars trying to improve this. And I also absolutely agree that I'm not sure that that billion, those billions of dollars has been well spent. I'm quite sceptical that China uh, (laughs) has been successful in building soft power. And in that context, of course, it's, it's deeply ironic that the period of PRC history in which China did arguably enjoy some of its greatest soft power, you know, in the 1960s with the the sort of global popularity of ideas about the Cultural Revolution and so on. The PRC today can't take ownership of that soft power uh, because the, the political values of Mao's China then clash so obviously with the sort of worship of political stability, uh, which sure. we have in China today. It, it has been noted over the last two or three years that um, uh, China under Xi does seem to be interested in stepping forward to, to take a more global leadership role in certain uh, world institutions, in certain international institutions. But at the same time, I would query the extent to which uh, China has been successful at strengthening its soft power. And I think this poses the question of to what extent a country which is so anxious to control its image internationally to what extent can this sort of country actually acquire enough freewheeling cultural capital to actually you know attract others you know to what extent can a a model which the center aims to control very tightly uh, actually seem appealing to broad audiences So, Julia, we're almost coming to the new decade. So where in 2020 is the next Maoist revolution going to break out? It's a difficult question to answer. Why not perhaps suggest China, uh, which has a well-developed grassroots neo-Maoist movement at the moment, which has been gathering steam since the 1990s where Mao still has a huge amount of cultural and political capital. So to write the final chapter of my book I wanted to try to take the story up to the present day and I spent quite a lot of time talking to uh, neo-Maoist thinkers and activists in China. I think that the neo-Maoist movement has, within a political context, which is extremely controlling of groups outside the CCP organising, so in this highly controlled context, neo-Maoist movements have just a little bit more leeway and the question of what these groups 
do with that extra leeway is perhaps you know, one of the most intriguing um, issues, sort of puzzlers about political participation in China today and the near future. Um, so, you know, will they use that ever so slightly greater uh, scope for activity to organise political alternatives? I mean, remember that neo-Maoists today are a very strange mix, that they are admirers of sort of strong state socialism, but many of them also applaud Mao's more rebellious ideas, you know, Mao of the of, of, of the Cultural Revolution, his slogans, to rebel is justified, uh, bombard the headquarters. Um, they call for, you know, the so-called mass democracy of the Cultural Revolution, something which I put a very heavy question mark next to. Um, so the question is, you know, what will happen to this sort of political energy and sympathy for Mao's ideas. Um, some, you know, some interesting signs to watch within the younger generation is the emergence of the so-called Marxist societies in China's top universities over the last year or two. And sure. some of these activists have rediscovered Mao. They've sort of gone back to Mao to inspire their own protests against the state. They've gone down to factories to organise workers to protest for trade unions against exploitative employers and and the conditions of globalisation. You know, so far, this has met a very, very heavy handed state response. Um, We should we should watch this space about what happens there. At work the other day, we were talking about all the overtime we're doing. And someone uh, gave me a Marxist critique of a labor exploiting capital to explain why um, we have to work overtime so much. So my um, my my personal vote is for Iceland, but you know that's that's neither here nor there, I guess. Uh, we heard Julia, it here first. <laughs> Julia, thanks so much for being a part of China Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason McRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shut the